is the Ultimate Advisor Podcast. The podcast for financial advisors who want to create a thriving, successful, and scalable practice. Each week, we'll uncover the ways that you can improve your referrals, your team, your marketing, and your business operations, helping you to level up your advising practice, bring in more assets, and create the advising practice that you've dreamed of. You'll be joined by your hosts, Brian Sweet, who has more than half a billion dollars in assets under management, Brittany Anderson, the driving force for advisors looking to hire, improve their operations and company culture, and Dre Redfern, who can help you systematize and automate your practice's marketing to effortlessly attract new clients. So, what do you say? Let's jump into another amazing episode of The Ultimate Advisor Podcast. Hey everyone, Dre Redfern here, and welcome back to the Ultimate Advisor Podcast, where this week we have a special guest, uh, a friend of mine, a colleague, a business partner, and a friend for several years now, the one, the only, Mr. Ben Hardy. But before I turn it over to him to introduce himself and sort of share a little bit about who he is and what he's all about and all the fun things that he's got going on... I wanted to preface this with when I first met Ben, before he was a PhD, before he had several books at this point that have you know claimed some notoriety and really put him on the map, Ben is, or currently is, the, the number one writer in the world on Medium.com and has been for several years. That being said, that means that his blogs have basically been read over 100 million times. That's a lot. And that, when you get that amount of traction and that amount of readership, you begin to, to build a big following. And so Ben has done some really cool things in his work and in his business to monetize the simple process of blogging. And the question that you may be asking is, how would this impact you? And the answer is in a variety of ways that we're going to sort of touch on. But we've got a lot of things to sort of cover and a lot of things that may go a little bit more than surface level, maybe some of the other interviews, because I know Ben. I've known Ben for several years and I know some of the things <laughs> that Ben talks about that could really move the needle for, for you all. So I'm excited to introduce you guys to Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Ben, I'm so glad to have you here. Yeah, man. I, I get a sense that probably this interview is going to go different ways because we, we do have plenty of uh, experiences we can share, tactics, strategies we can share that may be helpful specific to your audience. And then obviously we can share some crazy ideas uh, that may be more the psychological stuff that you know I talk so much about. But I will say this, um, just in preference, you know, I actually wrote an article about Dre. I think I've written a few, but you can find articles that I've written about Dre either on Forbes, Huffington Post and stuff. Dre, I will admit, you know, and he's, he, he doesn't, he didn't know I was gonna do this, but we are, we do our, our great friends and we've done great collaborations. He's totally transformed my business in many ways. So he met me at Genius Network. I was not making much money at the time. And, uh, but I had like an email list. I don't know at the time, maybe like 200,000. And he's like, dude, we got to launch. We got to do stuff with you, bro. <laughs> like, cause I was like, my main goal was honestly to get a six figure book deal. And my main focus was getting book contracts, which was, uh, you kind of have to have huge email lists to do that. It wasn't to optimize and, and monetize all of these things, but I was open to that and I was getting that education, but that wasn't my primary focus where he, and so he came in and uh, just as the go-giver, he is, did a lot of proactive service, immediately helped me monetize my new, my new leads, helped me make another like 10, 20 grand. But we've done some huge launches together. Our first major launch together, we did over 7K. We just did a launch, what, 
a couple months Seven, ago. Seven hundred K, not seven K. Yeah, seven hundred K. And we just barely finished one like a month ago that was like six eighty K, right? Um, yep. And I feel like over the years, uh, your thinking and your strategies have just evolved so much. It's it's been fun for us both to I, I feel like we've gotten very experimental, but you know, we we try new things and we we do things and it's it's always fun. That's what I love. It's I mean it's obviously stressful on both ends, but uh, and you do a lot of stuff behind the scenes that I don't see. But I feel like our collaborations have always been enjoyable. A hundred percent. And I think that, you know, being hands-on and rolling our sleeves up. So Ben is a, it has a PhD in organizational psychology. And actually, before I sort of go down the vein, I want to go, Ben, give a little bit of your background and sort of explain what a, the, what the PhD is, how you got there and sort of what your, your premises and a lot of what you write about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So organizational psychology is much like organizational behavior. My, my, my dissertation was on a concept called transformational leadership theory. So organizational psychologists usually are, they, they focus on leadership, they focus on organizational culture, on motivation, on productivity, on role development, just on allowing organizations to thrive. Usually they're internal or external consultants. I just liked the ideas of training and development and things like that and motivation. I just want to understand it from the inside out and leadership and things like that. I never intended to work for big corporations. I just wanted to understand the ideas as I was developing myself as a writer. So I started my PhD at Clemson in fall of 14, 2014. And during the first semester or second semester, my wife and I became foster parents of three kids in January of 2015. And over the course of my PhD program, we fought the legal system or the foster system, eventually adopted those three kids, have had twins since then. So we've got five kids now. We now live in Orlando. And during you went from season, zero to five kids in one year. In 2018. 2018 was the most crazy year of my life. I actually now realize it was more pivotal than I thought because I had my first extremely major failures in 2018 as well. I almost got kicked out of my PhD program. You know, many aspects of the willpower doesn't work launch, as you know, because you were deeply involved uh, and none of it was your fault. It was, it was, it was just total crap show, but it was, it was probably the biggest failure of my life. And uh, then we had we adopted three kids. We had twins. We moved to Florida that year, and uh, it was just a wild year. So that was that was crazy. But uh, during the course of my PhD program is when I was doing all the writing from 2015 to 2018, specifically on Medium.com, and just was lucky to be writing in a specific style on a specific platform at the right time. And my blogs just crushed on there. And what for so what is long. the style? So, as people who don't know who you are, what is the style that you write in? Yeah, it's a unique style. Uh, I think it's kind of probably more and more mainstream at this point. But I mean, there's a lot of, I use obviously marketing tactics. So obviously really extreme potent headlines with lots of numbers, listicles, but, but I write in a really aggressive tone, or at least I did in that time. And, uh, but I, I, and so it's very emotionally driven, very in your face writing, but it's also like incredibly science-based. And so it it feels logical while at the same time hitting you emotionally, um, very motivational, but also it feels rational and scientific at the same time, because I'm backing everything up. I'm, I'm citing research and, and ideas and quoting, you know, key figures, but I'm speaking directly at the reader and just, uh, you know, that, that type of writing is nice because it's not so technical that I can just write it all in a single flow of consciousness and then push publish. And then I've got to go back after it's published and edit it. So one of the things that I like about blogging, especially from your side, is it's someone who never has never known about you, who's never read anything, any of your books, any of uh, your other blog posts could spend 
20 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes or more reading some of these long form blog posts. And by the end of it, there's a certain amount of trust and rapport that you have with that person because you've clearly demonstrated, you know, you know what you're talking about and it's backed up by, by factual science-based evidence in which in today's culture, people throw around stats and metrics and all of these things that don't really mean anything. And it's difficult to sort of build that rapport. So I, I like that, th- that sense from a marketing side, because you have really built a, a massive audience and a massive following simply by writing and blogging and building that rapport. Then people can opt in and subscribe and these sorts of things. But through the writing, and through everything that you talk about, there's four sort of separate things that are some of my favorites that I want to be selfishly sort Let's of talk do it, about. Dude, that low. We're on your that, show. That's the that, best. That I think that that I think is, is is important. The four that I want to cover with you while we're together are goals and goal setting, investment, decision fatigue, and forcing functions. So those are four of my favorite things. And so you can sort of lead and talk about any of those in whatever way you, you see fit. But I think that those four are, are, are really good stuff for this audience. Perfect, man. Well, we'll go back and forth on all these and we'll see where we go with it. But uh, goals are interesting. I know that there's a lot of people who uh, go back and forth on are goals important? Are they relevant? Are they useful? From a psychological perspective, goals are, it's impossible not to have goals. Like if you go to the bathroom, it's because you had a goal. You had to, you know, relieve yourself. Like every behavior is goal focused. Like every single thing we do is motivated by outcomes. And so the thing you want to do then is, is obviously get very clear on the outcomes you want so that you can be more intentional about how you spend all of your time. So I, I, I definitely believe in goals. Uh, I believe that they should start with an imagined future self where you frame out who you want to be. I, I think three years out is usually a good span because it's, it's harder to go beyond that. I think you can be general beyond that. But having a, a, a future self where you think about what's your situation like? What are you doing in that chapter of your life? There's, a, there's actually a gaping void piece of art. I don't know if you've seen this one, Dre, but it says career development. Our career hierarchy. Have you seen the career hierarchy? I haven't, no. So it's like a pyramid and there's three layers and the bottom layer is paycheck to paycheck. So the bottom of the career hierarchy, the next, the next level is, is project to project. And then the top one is adventure to adventure. And so it's, it's a good one. You, you could type I in like career, career hierarchy, gaping void. But the reason I like that is because, you know, when you're going paycheck to paycheck, you're not really, you're not seeing things that big. But once you get into projects, you start to have bigger and bigger goals and adventures. And, and I think that it's nice to break your life up into chapters. And so, you know, once you've accomplished this chapter, once you're into that next chapter, like what's the next big adventure, what are you going to be doing? Who's your future self? What are you really after once you've accomplished what it is, all the stuff you're currently working through right now, what's that next level. So like when I was in graduate school, that next level for me was that I was a professional author and that I was able to write books with the major publishers and, and make a living doing that. And so once I conceptualized out my future self, my future situation, and it's important from a psychological perspective to realize that your future self is not the same person as who you are. They're totally different. Hopefully, hopefully they're wiser. They've got different perspectives, different goals. They've gone through experiences that have hopefully refined their perspectives. They see things better. And so it's nice for decision-making to say, you know, what is your future self like? And then, then from my perspective, from a motivation perspective, it's really nice Motivation requires three things. You know, one is a clear goal. Number two is a clear path to getting there. And then three is the confidence that you can do whatever's required. And that's why I like one goal. I like, what's the one major goal that would enable the future self to become real? And for me, when it was the 
book thing, it was, I, I conceptualized the goal. I've got to get a six figure book deal. Like if I can figure out that, then I'll, my future self will be possible because then I'll be with a major publisher. Like that'll be true. I'll be making enough money to provide for my family. I'll be, I'll be an author. Like, and so once you define a very quantifiable target, you can then start to reverse engineer it, but also you can start to shape a, a, an identity narrative around it where it become, your goal becomes the byproduct of your identity rather than your past. And you can start to see yourself as that author, start to explain yourself, and then you start to figure out how to get there. So that's, those are some kind of key steps and goals, I would say, is, at least as jumping points. And, how, and so the other thing around that I think that, that, that's worth sort of talking about is how does investment tie to goal or the future self? So making some sort of uh, investment, either time or monetary. Yeah. I mean, I would say if your future self is going to become your current self, then the more time you spend being your future self, <laughs> the better. Because right now you're still being your current self. And so the more time you can spend doing activities that your future self would be doing, obviously that investment of time is good. And the less time you could spend, you know, obviously there's going to be some crossover between who you are right now and what you're up to versus who your future self is. But if you really get clear on it, so obviously time is big, but I, I'm really big in investing money in your future identity. I see that as investing money into your subconscious. So like your subconscious is what's autopilot. Your subconscious is who you are right now. It's actually more a reference of your past. And it's, it's just it's obviously unconscious. And so it's who you can be without thinking about it. Whereas your future self, you've got to, you've got to have intentional thought and creation and be conscious about your future self. And then you've got to be conscious and act conscious and intentional in order to more fully be your future self. And so it's easy to drop back into autopilot and just be who you are. And so one of the reasons why making financial investments is powerful is that you're literally investing money into your future identity, investing money into mentorships, or into collaborations or into knowledge or into experiences that will transform you, transform your knowledge, your experience, your situation into, into the person you want to be. And investment creates commitment. Investment's also a huge aspect of identity where you spend your money really shapes how you view yourself. So financial investment's big and I love it. So one, you've mentioned a, a couple of things. I know what it is, but I, I, I want to sort of define it is yeah, what is it. the difference between your current self versus your future self and how do you craft or create that future self? Yeah. I mean, so your current self is just who you are right now. And you might not have even, you, yeah, some people might not even be able to define that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and so I, I do think taking some time to think about who you are right now. One of the things I do in all my journals, so I go through about a journal a month, but in the front cover of my journals, I ask myself five questions. And, and the nice part is, is that is all I have to do is open up the front cover and I can get a quick reference of what my life was like at the moment of that journal. But the first question is just, where am I right now? And I'll just answer like four or five bullets. You know, it's like, okay, I'm 32 years old, uh, working on the next book, you know, trying to focus on my kids, you know, and then the next question is, what are my wins from the last 90 days? And this just kind of gives me a sense of what the heck I've been up to, like, and what I've been accomplishing and what I've been focused on. Next question is, where do I want to be in the next 90 days? And just writing about the, the three to five wins that would be most meaningful in the short term. The next question is, who's my future self in three years? And it's just like literally three to five bullets of just what are the key attributes and situational factors of who I want to be? And then what do I want to accomplish at the end of this year? So I think that that's kind of a good framing of like who you are and where you want to go. But I really think journaling is a great place to start. I think journaling about and just answering questions about like literally asking yourself, who is your future self? What's their situation? What's their day-to-day -day life like? Like, what do they wear? Like, what are their clothes like? What are their habits? What's different about you and them? You can actually define that. Like, 
what 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 did you, what has your future self learned that you currently don't know? What skills do they have? Like who are they, who are they in relationships with? How much money do they make? Why do you want to become this person? Is a big one. Like this is just getting clear and intentional. And intention and once once you become intentional about a future self and you've clearly distinguished it from your current self and you and you're pretty clear and excited about who that person is and what they're up to, then it's up to you how aggressively you pursue that person. One of the big things that I talk about in personalizing permanent is that a big problem that people have with their current identities is that they assume that who they are right now is who they authentically and truly are. They, they overvalue their current self. They're not flexible psychologically. So there's two concepts, psychological flexibility and confidence are both required for not only imagination, but not holding your current identity so tightly. Because if you, if you think that your current self is who you really are, and it's black and white, and you're dogmatic in your views of yourself. And if you overly defend how you define yourself, if you overly defend your labels, as an example, then you've created tunnel vision. And then you have a hard time seeing outside of the labels. This is one of the reasons why I really don't like personality profiling tests is because they create tunnel vision and they create a defensive identity. Um, talk, talk more about that because I know that's something that you that you you have a lot of research to back up because there's a lot of people and I know these people personally where they're like I'm in uh, INTP or INTJ and I'm uh, you know whatever else you go down the the, the personality test you know metrics that yeah. they they put themselves into a box so, so you got a lot of science to sort of. I, yeah. I, I guess clarify that. So, so talk a little bit about that for a minute. Yeah, this is interesting. It's, it, it can be surprising to people. And honestly, it was not the motivation I had for writing this book. But when I was going through my PhD, and a lot of what we do in my PhD is we do test development. One of the big things that I heard over and over from every single one of my professors is that tests like Myers and Briggs and any type-based test is non-scientific for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is, is that they're not valid. Um, they're not consistent. One of the reasons they're not consistent is because you're not going to get the same score in different situations. You're not going to get the same score over different periods of time. So there's lots of research that shows like, like one research study showed like they pulled the participants of the study and split them into two groups. And the one group got the same test twice over a period of time from the same test administrator. And they got similar scores. But again, there's a short period of time. The other group got the same test, same period of time, but two different test administrators and their scores were totally non non-related. They've done lots of tests where they, like now they're doing more longitudinal research where they're testing people and then testing them again, like 10, 15, 20 years later. And they're finding that the longer the gaps, the, the totally less correlated the findings are. And so this is one of the reasons why they're not considered scientific. One of the, one of the reasons, because it should be consistent. If it is, if it's a high quality measure, it should be able to get the same thing over and over. But with personality, it's not going that way. Because people are, are, are more contextual, more fluid, um, they do change. The research shows that your personality is going to change over time. I mean, a really good example of this. So there's a guy named Dr. Daniel Gilbert. He's at Harvard. And he asks people, you know, you know, and you can think about this yourself, Dre, and anyone who's listening can think about this. Like, who were you 10 years ago? Like, how different are you from who you were 10 years ago? Like, what were your goals? What was your focus? How did you see the world? What were your habits? What was your peer group? Like, what was your assumptions? Like, have you changed a little bit in the last 10 years? Uh, dramatically, like not light and night and day. Like the person I was 10 years ago, I would not even recognize the person that I am now for the better. 
Uh, yeah, I peer groups agree. are up leveled. Income is up leveled. Uh, success is up leveled. Perspectives, uh, perspective, you know? relationships, all of the things. So, and you're yeah, someone I, who's actively learning, so I would expect that. You know, there's the the Elaine Button quote: "If you're not embarrassed by who you were 12 months ago, you didn't learn enough." Like, so you're someone who's aggressively learning and things like that. I think that everyone's changed over the last 10 years because they've had experiences and stuff. But if you're someone like you, you know, who's like has goals and is pursuing education, you, I mean, you're in so many groups and masterminds you've, you've got kids like you're not avoiding difficult experiences you're not avoiding new experiences you're seeking learning and, and you expect that you're going to keep doing that but what dr gilbert found and finds basically is that a lot of people if they look back on the last 10 years they can say yeah I've, i can see some pretty dramatic changes in my tastes and in my attitudes and my habits from the last 10 years but then if he asks them who do you think you're how much do you think you're going to change in the next 10 years most people think that their change over the next 10 years is going to be a lot less than the, than the last 10 years. And it's a concept in psychology called the end of history illusion. And it basically just means that you, you think that who you are right now is pretty much the fully formed version of you and you overly value your current identity. So what, what Dr. Gilbert says is that human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished, which is really interesting. So, but he says the reason people do this is because it's a lot easier to remember the past than to imagine the future. And he says, that's powerful. Are, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, uh, people are bad at predicting the future, not because they can't, but because they don't, they don't take the time to imagine a future self. They don't take the time to, and he actually has a Ted talk called the psychology of your future self. And there's a lot of research on this. It's a great little Ted talk. It's like five, 10 minutes long, but there's a lot of research dipping into these realms now, but to kind of one more, a few more just quick thoughts on, on, on the personality tests, and then we can go whatever way you want. But one of their problems is, is that let's just say you get a score. You take the Myers-Briggs, you get an ENTJ or whatever score you get. You take the disc, you get a D. One of the problems is, is that you, they assume that that score is always true. So they actually ignore context. They assume that who you are in one situation is always true, which is not true you're not always going to be the same person in certain roles. You're going to act certain ways. And so one of the things that psychology has found is is that the role you're in is actually a big predictor of your personality. Like you're an entrepreneur, you're a startup guy, like how you act and operate as an entrepreneur is sort of the same, but also slightly different than probably how you are as a father and as a husband and as a son, like, yes, certain things will cross over, but you're going to be, your role predicts a lot of how you operate and how you act. So context is totally ignored with these tests. Also, I'll just tell you the one reason why I think people really love these tests is because what they do is they give people a sense of identity. You get a score back and you can clearly describe yourself. So identity is shaped by story. And a lot of people haven't taken the time to fully define how they describe themselves. And so what the test does is it does that for them. Oh, I'm an ENTJ. And you can then explain yourself to other people. And so it gives you a sense of identity the problem is, is that the, again, the identity becomes tunnel vision and it becomes, you believe it's who you really are. And research shows that you, you become mindless when you overly adapt a label. You, you, you believe that it's always true. So if you consider yourself depressed, you'll believe you're always depressed when that's actually not the case. You just selectively focus on the things you identify with. And then you come to defend the label rather than assume that your future self is going to be different and seek what your future self would want. You just, you defend your label and it becomes tunnel vision and then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I love the idea of uh, your current self, your future self and 10 years. Like the first time I heard you talk about that was sort of, it opened up a lot of sort of uh, ideas for me. One of the other concepts that I think that would be worthwhile talking about 
is, you know, you, you've got this 10 year plan, this 10 year vision of your future self. How do we go about sort of making that happen to a certain degree? And, and in particular, I, I'd like to touch on what you call a lot of, uh, is, is forcing function. So how do we use, what is a forcing function and how do we use those to craft that 10 year personality? Yeah, I love it. I think one thing to think about, you know, you and I have both heard of the concept of deliberate practice. So deliberate practice is actively engaging in activity. Usually it involves coaching. I know that you get coaching, I get coaching, but it's towards, it's called deliberate for a purpose. It, it's towards something and it's not just passive learning. It's active, intense learning. And research shows that it's impossible to engage in that type of learning and that type of practice without a, free, a, a clear future self. Like I even provide quotes of identity research, but you can't engage in deliberate practice without an envisioned future self with the attributes or the situation you're trying to develop. Like it's impossible to engage in deliberate practice or the type of intentional effort and transformation and experiences and coaching and mentoring and, and training that would lead to becoming whoever it is you're trying to be. And so with forcing functions, forcing functions are just a brilliant method, a brilliant methodology to going against your current self, um, blocking yourself against your current self so that you don't subconsciously self-sabotage yourself because that's often the case. Just to give it a quick definition, like it comes from design thinking. So a forcing function is some aspect of the design that stops a user from making unwanted errors. So in technology, there's forcing functions put in place so that you you can't go certain ways because it just wouldn't be good for you. Like there's there's purposeful constraints put in place so that you don't make dumb decisions. And so you can use these this type of thinking to design situations that allow you to not make stupid mistakes yourself because it's easy for all of us to just make stupid mistakes. And they're just situations that you put in place or they're situations that other people can put in place for you such as a mentor or something like that. Um, you and I in, it created a forcing function because we both wanted to do an Ironman. And one of those forcing functions is we did it together. We paid $1,000 to be a part of it. And so we did financial investment. Financial investment, we've already talked about, but that's a powerful forcing function because it creates commitment. And so if I hadn't paid that $1,000 and if I wasn't doing it with you, it would just be an idea in my head. But because I did it with you, where there's social pressure, which is a great forcing function, and because we both invested money, then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I guess we're going to do this. Like another, another, so that's a smart way of doing it. So like my wife and I, we recently went to a, a restaurant called Alinea in Chicago that we've always wanted to go to, but it, it, it wouldn't have ever been real if my wife didn't just make the uh, reservation and buy the plane tickets. That becomes a forcing function. So like when you put things in place so that it's like, Oh, I guess it's going to happen. So if you want, for example, to have an experience is all you got to do is just pay for it in advance. Like, and all of a sudden it's, it's on the schedule timelines are, in my opinion, the most powerful forcing function. That's why I like doing my most creative work in the morning is because usually, usually there's something between eight, nine, 10 or 11 that I have to be at. And so there's an embedded timeline in my morning. And so I know that if I'm doing creative work, it's going to have to end soon. So like Dan Martell, he's a, he's an entrepreneur and he's someone I write about and what part doesn't work. But one of the things he does as a forcing function is he'll go to like workspaces, co-working spaces or libraries with his computer, but he'll purposefully leave his power cable home. And he does that because he knows that his computer is going to die in two hours and he drives like 20 minutes to get there. And so he's like, he knows he can't just sit around because his computer is going to die. And he knows he's got like timelines and stuff. So he's got to work. And so it's, it's forced. The purpose of forcing functions is to create flow states. It's to create 
It's to get you absorbed in what you're doing so that you can actually focus rather than keep pulling yourself away. So timelines do that. Investment does that. Social pressure does that. Collaborations do that. I love the idea of you know going somewhere and your laptop battery only has a certain amount of juice in it, and when it's dead, it's dead, and you got you got to bust out. That's your a forcing work. function. A hundred percent. We've talked about. I think also like writers who you buy like a you know business class ticket to like Japan just so that they're not around or they're not getting phone calls and they're not getting internet, so they could actually just you know fly there, write all the way there, land, hop a flight, and fly all the way back. That's a forcing function. Yeah, and, you've put yourself in a situation. That's exactly it. And so finding ways in each of our lives, whether that's through health or through business or through income or through relationships to create more of those forcing functions consciously, because I, you know, and I'm of the belief, I think that you would, you would, you would be able to back this up scientifically that the more forcing functions that you have that are beneficial and that they're sort of that match your goals, the greater the likelihood would be that you would sort of achieve or attain those goals. Yeah. I mean, what you want to do is you want to make a decision right now that allows your future self, like in your weakened state, like, let's just say, you know, like as an example, like, and this kind of fits with decision fatigue as well. So like decision fatigue and willpower go hand in hand. And the idea is, is that if you haven't fully made a decision, but you've delayed that decision, for some future experience, you're probably going to make a bad decision. So let me explain. Like, let's just say you, you want to wake up at 5 a.m., but you haven't, you haven't set yourself up to do that. Like, there's no reason to get up. There's no, there's no either, there's no either task to do, person to meet with. You just told yourself you want to do it. And so you hit the alarm and there's no actual reason to get up. You haven't actually made a decision. And so when the alarm goes off, you then have to make a decision about what you're going to do and why you're going to get up. So you've put yourself in a situation where you have to make a decision in that moment. And that's a really bad time to make a decision. And usually that's when situations win. The same is true of like dieting. Like, so if you, if you are going to be on a diet, this is why they say hundred percent commitment is easier than 98% commitment is because if you're 98% committed, then in, in every situation you're in, you have to make a decision. Is this one of those 2% of times? Like, is this one of those 2% of times when I'm going to eat sugar as an example Every time you're in a situation, if you have to make a new decision, often the situation is going to win. The back and forth mental tussle is decision fatigue and it burns you out. And just making single decisions is powerful. And so just as an example of a forcing function that, uh, that eliminates decision fatigue and, and, and makes desired effort easier is just like, let's just say you wanted to wake up at 530 in the morning and you had a gym, like, you know, a person you were going to meet for a run. 10, 15 minutes away and they were going to be there at 10, 15. Like, and, and you had a reason for that run. Maybe you were training for something together. Like you'd probably be more likely to get up at 5 a.m. if you had something to get up for, if you had some social pressure, if you had something to do. It's a lot easier for me to wake up when I've got like a timeline and a deadline. I've got stuff I need to accomplish. And so it eliminates decision fatigue. And yeah, you're 100% right. The more of these things you can embed into your life and eliminate bad options. I mean, this is what it's really about. Is it's, it's about putting... It's about removing a lot of the options that you already know you don't want. It's about kind of making a track for yourself so that you, because you know you want the track, you know, or you know you want the destination. And so it's about creating a track that kind of forces yourself forward. So uh, there's, there's a couple things on that that I think that I want to, I just want to yeah, have you elab- uh, elaborate on is you use the words interchangeably, decision fatigue and willpower. 
and you wrote a book called Willpower Doesn't Work. So could you just share a little bit more of sort of like the, the premise of that book and how that, that sort of uh, any other additional sort of underlying tactics or strategies that may be sort of overlapping with what we've talked about so far? Yeah. So like willpower, there's really just two ways of looking at willpower. One is it's energy. It's the amount of energy you have. So when you have less energy because you're fried, uh, you're more likely to make bad decisions because you have low willpower. And so energy and decision-making go hand in hand. That's why energy depletion and, and decision fatigue go together. They're pretty much the same concept. Your ability to make good decisions depends a lot on your energy and, and a lot on the situation. And so if you're fried... And you, you're, let's just say your willpower is gone, you're probably going to make bad decisions. And when I say bad decisions, I'm mostly saying you're probably going to make short-term thinking decisions to create quick dopamine releases. You're going to just need consumption. You're going to seek uh, technology. You're going to seek food and carbs and things that just give quick comfort because you want fast-paced energy. And often those decisions are obviously short-term thinking with negative consequences. And so you want to avoid that. And so, yeah. And so basically the idea is, is that our environment, the world we live in, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of intense stimuli. We got technology at our feet. We've got access to food. You know, we have decision overload right now. Like we have access to everything and anything, and we can spend our time in so many different ways that our decision fatigue is fried because we've got too many options. And so you know, they, there's, there's a book called The Paradox of Choice, and he talks about choice overload and about how it fries your, your willpower. And, and so this is why BJ Fogg talks about how design beats willpower, is because you need to design situations to essentially shield yourself from most of the options out there. So in Personalities and Permanent, I talk about um, strategic ignorance, about literally creating situations where you're just ignorant of most things. Like Peter Diamandis, as an example, he's ignorant of the news. Like he just doesn't want to be exposed to typical news, but he's a futurist. And so he's got to get current events, but he gets them from specific sources. And so he's created systems and environments and things like that to shield him from most of the information out there that he knows is going to be unbeneficial. Like Seth Godin, as an example, used to read Amazon comments about his books, but it just destroyed his, his self-esteem. And so he just realized he's better off being strategically ignorant about people's opinions about his books. You know, like he doesn't need to know that, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get feedback and support from his books. And so it's best when you start to come up with a plan of a future self and who you want to be to start to eliminate as many options that you know are just ultimately distractions to what you're trying to accomplish, um, to become strategically ignorant. And forcing functions are, are just one method for making hard decisions to block off alternative options that you don't really want anyways. And, you know, that's what they say. The true definition of decision is to cut off alternative options. And so you want to just create scenarios and situations and environments that allow you to stay focused on the track you're on. And yeah, you still want to be aware of new opportunities and things like that. But you also need to have systems in place where you're unaware of most of those things because you've created rules about what comes to your consciousness, uh, whether it be in the form of an autoresponder or an assistant or anything. So like my assistant, as an example, she's my filter. Like I give her the rules and then she says yes or no. And I'm only aware of the things that are above the line of the filter I've given her. Everything else she says no to, or she deals with. 
And that's perfect. I think that a, a lot of our listeners are they're they're successful to a certain degree, but everybody wants sort of more success, and they're looking for that that edge. And that's why sort of a lot of the things that I want to talk about here are for someone who's already sort of a high performer, or they're already having some sort of success. You know, um, what you have something like you know s- something uh, small lever or small hinges swing big doors, and then a lot of the things we've talked about so far are small hinges that could really just make big differences in people's lives. But I, I want to take a few minutes and want, you know, you've mentioned, you know, we had, we, the, the book willpower doesn't work came out a few years ago, but there's also personality isn't permanent that is coming out pretty shortly here. So, and we, and we talked a little bit about as far as personality tests, but what's sort of some of the insights uh, around the book that you can share. And then also sort of, you know, where people can go to pre-order a copy and, uh, and sort of the next steps uh, around the book. Yeah, man. So the book is going to be controversial. Uh, I will say that uh, it's you know you write a book with the title "Willpower Doesn't Work" and like half the people are like intuitively that sounds like a lie, you know. And so this book is the exact same. Like I have to start this book by breaking down the core perspectives of personality, which most people have, and that's this. Most people, so personality is generally viewed as your consistent attitudes and behaviors which is, which is a good de- a definition, but how most people come to view it is, is that it's your innate self that you have to discover whether that be through experiences or through some personality profile. And once you finally discover who you truly are, then you can build your life around that personality. You can begin pursuing a career that fits who you are. You can marry someone who fits you perfectly. And so you're kind of a passive seeker. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who you are. And this is one of the reasons why this is one of the reasons why when you're trying to figure out who you are, you go straight to the past because the past is assumed to be the most powerful aspect of who you are and because, because the past is what's led you to who you are. And so rather than trying to create yourself, the whole goal is to find yourself. And once you finally found yourself, you can then pursue a life that fits who you are. And I find that to be a very limiting perspective of personality. I also, given the science, know that your personality is going to change if you become intentional, you can go through, you know, transformational experiences. And so rather than trying to figure out who you are, it's a lot better to decide who you want to be rather than setting goals based on your personality. It's better to base your personality on the goals you set thinking about who do I want to become? What kind of characteristics? And, and, and yes, it is difficult. I'm not going to say it's easy, but the main, the main thing that stops people is their own emotional development uh, and also their peer group and things like that. So we all have things like trauma. We've got a story. We've got, we've got subconscious you know, <laughs> baggage and we've got an environment. And those are the real things that drive our personality. Like there's lots of research that shows that who you are right now and the decisions you're making, a lot of it has to do with unresolved trauma and that trauma is a big thing that's driving who you are right now, not your true self. Uh, the other thing is your story and just how you've defined yourself. And then obviously your subconscious and just like your embedded habits, which fundamentally are easy. Not, I wouldn't say easy, but are totally changeable on a like regular basis. And then just your environment. Like there's a lot of research that shows your social group predicts everything about you. It predicts your, you know, how much money you're going to make, how moral you are, whether you're likely to become an entrepreneur, whether you're likely to become a criminal. And so once you become strategic about these levers, you know, reframing your trauma, shifting your story, upgrading your subconscious and changing your environment, then, then you can start to actually move your life in an intentional direction. So, uh, I've already read it. 
I, I was uh, privileged enough to get a to get a copy of it ahead of time. I I, I like it. I love it. It's uh, it's better than the first, and I can't wait for everyone to to get a copy as well. So where can they go at this point to pre order to pre order their own copy? Anywhere they can pre order it on Amazon, Barnes, just wherever you want the book, however you want it. And when does it come out? June sixteenth. Looking forward to it. And any uh, final thoughts or parting words that you think that uh, that people should know about? Nope. Just uh, get the book. I'm confident it will shock your system in a positive way, and it will change your life. It will it will hit you hard, and it will help you realize what's been keeping you in cycles. And it will it will give you a, it will give you, in my opinion, the most effective ways to becoming who you want to be. It, I think, I think it's pretty, pretty comprehensive. I love it. So uh, what I encourage you to do right now is go to Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble, pre-order your copy. And I would also highly suggest that you go to benjaminhardy.com and uh, sign up for his newsletter. Ben sends two to three emails a week uh, of just amazing content. If you like this podcast episode, you're going to love the blog post. It's a lot of what we talked about earlier. They're long form uh, content with incredibly valuable information to help you increase your productivity with morning routines, evening routines. We talk a lot about environment. He talks about goals and investment and forcing functions. A lot of the stuff that we've already talked about, he goes so much more in depth. So I highly suggest you grab your copy of the book, go to benjaminhardy.com, grab it, you know, sign up for the, uh, the weekly newsletter because you will not be disappointed. So that being said, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, thanks for being with us. So appreciate it, my friend. And, uh, fun, man, we've, we've done some transformational experiences together, dude, over the last two years. I think we've both, I think it's safe to say we've both evolved a lot since we knew, since we first met a hundred percent. And I expect that same, uh, that, that, that same amount of growth for our future selves another two years from now. I couldn't agree more, man. We got a lot to, a lot to do. One of the things that uh, Dan Sullivan says is if he says, if you're truly going to commit to your future, you've got to reject your present. <laughs> Ooh, it's powerful. That's powerful. All right, my friend. Well, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, guys, we'll grab a copy of the book and we will see you on next week's episode. Take care. Hey there, Brittany Anderson here. If you are loving what you're hearing on our Ultimate Advisor podcast, don't keep us a secret. Share us with other advisors that you think would benefit from the messages that you are hearing. The easiest way to do that is to simply send them to ultimateadvisorpodcast.com. And if you want to learn a few other ways that we could potentially serve you as an advisor, go check out ultimateadvisormastermind.com. As always, we are so happy to have you here with us as part of the Ultimate Advisor community, and we look forward to a continued relationship.